Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. Hey, one of the things I just want to share with you, this is rabbit trail, I'm wasting my time and I've got lots that I want to talk to you about, but when we pray, like as God's kids, he's given us specific authority. Like we have, I don't, I don't have authority outside of my jurisdiction, if that makes sense. Like I know my call to this church family and to this region. And so there's authority there. And so some of you are like, well, if you're going to pray like for these people, why don't you just pray for the whole world? Well, that's not the place of my authority. It may not even be the place of your authority. It doesn't mean that we can't pray, but where we have authority, we have authority. All right. And so like if you're a parent, pray for your kids. God's given you authority there. Maybe you're a business owner or a teacher. Pray for those places specifically. Doesn't mean we don't pray for other things. But when we begin to understand our authority, what we see is power in our prayers because we have jurisdiction in those places. Does that make sense? All right. Doesn't mean we don't pray for other people. But when we understand our authority, uh, it matters uh, quite a bit. We're going to be this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We are continuing our series week two on people of the presence. Last week, I, I talked to you a little bit about um, Exodus 33 and God's presence uh, in the Israelites, in them and among them. I talked to you about the tent of meeting where they would throw up this tent outside of the camp and they would go to meet with God. Well, the, the evolution of that inside of the Jewish people is that eventually they built the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, what they did is they, they put that in the center of their community. And so as Israel was making their journey towards the promised land and winding through the wilderness, they always kept the, the tabernacle at the center of their community. Here's the interesting thing. If you were to look at an overview, a layout of the way that their camp was set up, it actually would make the shape of a cross. Now that's phenomenal when you think about there was no cross that Jesus had not shown up on earth. Um, he was still about a thousand years out, pretty significant, 1500 years out, pretty significant what was going on and all of the, the imagery there. But I want to talk to you just for a second about us and culture. You see, what they did is they made their camp around the presence of God for them as the people of God. That was the defining element for them. And what would happen is that there would be a pillar of smoke by day and a, and a pillar of fire by night, and they would move with the presence of God. So as the presence of God lifted from that camp, everybody would start packing their bags, rolling up their tents, and they would move and follow the presence of God into the place that they would be. Now, when you think about a few million people moving as nomads through a wilderness, if you're not following the presence of God, you're probably not going to have the provision that you need in order to be where you're supposed to be and have all that you need. And so they're following the presence of God in everything that they do. It's not for them about religion. It's for them about a way of life. And you see, for us today, it's the presence of God, not simply among us, but in us that leads us. And right now, in our culture, there is something going on. I talked to you about this last week, that, that we're entering into this post-Christian culture. The, 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 here's what that means. In the West, 
For the last several hundred years, values and morality has been defined around around Christianity, Christian principles, Christian values, Christian morals. That's no longer the case for a majority of our culture. We, as the people of God, have to rethink how we're going to live if we're going to navigate what God has called us to by the power and presence of God. You see, we can't any longer go with the flow of culture. And we've got to think about that as we're raising our kids, as we're choosing the directions that we're going to go in our life. We have to allow the very presence of God to be what defines us. And we cannot give our way of life over to mainstream culture. Now, this isn't new. This is, this has actually been the predominant way that the people of God have lived for all of world history. So it's not that things are just the world's going to hell in a handbasket, but our culture is experiencing a departure from biblical morality, which would require that we think more about the way we live. We've actually been able to live pretty lazy in the West. We could allow culture around us to disciple us instead of the very presence of God in us and among us, instead of the word of God, instead of being the community of God. And so we have to think about the way that we form our lives and the way that we raise our kids, the way that we develop our families. We're, we're not looking for the culture to define us, but now we have to be even more thoughtful so that we would go in the ways of God. Some would hear this and be threatened. I see an incredible opportunity in it. There's an invitation to lean further into God and his ways in order to define us. And I believe this, when you look throughout biblical history, the further that the culture has gotten from the ways of God, the more supernatural the people of God become. And so what I think God wants to do in us and among us is draw us to himself, that we would be a people who are set apart We have got to start thinking of ourselves not as mainstream culture, but as an alternative culture formed around the presence of God. And when we start seeing ourselves that way, then we actually get to be the bright light, the city on the hill that the world needs for us to be. But when we begin to give away our way of life to mainstream culture, allow them to raise our kids, allow them to shape our thoughts, allow the pressures of the culture around us to shape us, then what happens is we begin to live double-minded lives. And James chapter one says it makes us unstable in all that we do. I believe that there's an incredible opportunity for us in this season to be a people of God shaped by the very presence of God in us and among us. Amen? Go with me now to Second Samuel, Second Samuel, Samuel, <laughs> chapter six. So here's a little bit of backstory. David has just become king. This is one of his first acts as king. Now David is unique because he's actually living as a man outside of his time. It's like he would have fit in best with Jesus and the apostles, and yet he's living under the old covenant. And he lives in such a way, 
under the old covenant, he actually lives as a new covenant person because he has clarity on who the person of God is and he responds not based on the law, but based on intimacy. We see that David actually cultivated intimacy with God when he was alone. We see him as a shepherd and it's like he knows the very presence of God. And so now when David becomes king, he recognizes something really significant. If he's going to have the same authority and the same power that he has as a shepherd over his flock, that he's going to need the very presence of God to lead him and to shape him and his nation. And so what he decides to do is that he's going to bring the ark in. You don't have to go there with me. I just want to read to you from 2 Chronicles 13. Verses two through four, I think this sets the scene well for the rest of this chapter. It says, and he reigned in Jerusalem three years. Nope, that's not it. First Chronicles. There we go. That's what I was looking for. So David calls everybody together and he says to the whole assembly, if it seems good to, to you and if it is the will of our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel and, let, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us and let us bring the ark of our God back to us. For we did not acquire, inquire of it dur during the reign of Saul. The whole assembly agreed to this because it seemed right to all the people. David is making a shift in the way that Israel functions as a government. You see, Saul, an incredibly insecure leader, is terrified of the presence of God. And so he moves Israel as the first king in his self-reliance. He wants to be the king and he doesn't want God to be the king. And so he, he distanced himself from the ark and from the presence of God. David recognizes that God is the king of kings. And so while he is king, God is his king, and he recognizes this, that if he's going to be successful and if they're going to prosper as the people of God, then they need the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God rested. You see, here, here's the, the principle in this is this, that in order for me to be a person of the presence of God, I go to the tent of meeting. I, I cultivate intimacy with God on my own. But in order for us to be a people of the presence, we have to do something corporately. We have to be in agreement corporately for the presence of God to come here. David understood that principle, and so he didn't say, I am making a decree as king that we're bringing the ark in here. No, instead, what he said is that as a people, we need to be in agreement for the presence of God to rest over our kingdom. Here's what we see in Jesus. Jesus goes to his hometown, and there he's actually not received 
as the son of God. And so what we see is that he's not able to do many miracles there. Actually, he does no miracles corporately. But instead, he heals those who come to him. Why? Because corporately, the town is not hosting the presence of God. But individually, people get an encounter because of what their individual faith brings. Here's what that means. For a church family to be a people of the presence of God, we don't need good worship leaders, though I'm grateful that we have good worship leaders. We don't need a pastor or elders that are saying, hey, we want to be submitted to God. That's not all that it takes. Those are, are definitely ingredients in the recipe. But what it, what it requires of us is that we would actually be a people in agreement saying, hey, we want the presence of God here, right here among us. It, it, so what that means is that you are not a spectator, but that you're actually a participant in hosting the presence of God. And when we begin to think that way, it changes the way that we engage in worship. It actually changes the way that we come to church. Because I'm not coming thinking, hey, I wonder what they have for me lately. Are they going to play the song that I like? Are they going to preach the message that I like? No. What, what we're looking for is an opportunity for us to collectively say, we are going to host the presence of God. And it doesn't matter what it sounds like, what it looks like. It doesn't matter what I'm going to receive, but I want the presence of God with me and in me and among me. And here's what happens. When we host the presence of God, we always get blessed by the presence of God. He takes care of everything that we need. And so no longer do we just need somebody that has faith, but what happens is an atmosphere is, in, is created. It says in scripture that God inhabits the praises of his people. What happens is, is that God begins to show up in such a way. It doesn't mean that he's not always with us, but there's a manifestation of his presence that we get all that he is and all that he has for us, that he actually gives himself to us. That's significant for us because it changes our mindset. If we begin to grasp that, many of us would show up for pre-service prayer at nine o'clock and just begin to pray and welcome the presence of God. Many of us would be worshiping on the way to church in our cars because we know, hey, I'm going to meet with God and I'm going to bring my peace because I've got buy-in to God's presence in us and among us. And it's not simply about being a people of his presence in worship on a Sunday morning, and it's definitely not just about music, but it's about being a people who are yielded to his presence working in us and among us. And you can never get there by force. You always have to get there by faith, which is always an option. That's why we, as a nation, can't just strong arm our nation into Christianity and say, hey, God's going to rule us no matter what. Doesn't work that way. We have to get there by our own volition, by our own will. When we begin to see him for who he is, when he begins to manifest himself among us, what happens is, is that a church gets impacted by the presence of God. And then, and then a region gets impacted by the presence of God. And it begins to shape things, not looking for command and control, but creating an opportunity for people to encounter God and say, hey, I want to make him Lord. I want to live under his rule and under his reign. I 
All right, I said a few times we were going to start in 2 Samuel, 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 there it is again, chapter 6. Verse 1, David again brought together all the, all the able young men of Israel, 30,000, and he and his men went to Bala, it sounds like Baller, but in Judah, to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. Anytime God makes a covenant, he's present. So the ark carried the covenant, carried the, the terms of the covenant. It was the ark of the covenant. God is present. You, your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and your spirit is the ark of the covenant that he sits enthroned on with his spirit. All right. So that's what it looks like now in the new covenant. It says, they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it up from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. It had been in Abinadab's house for 20 years. Abinadab's sons, Uzzah and Ahio, had actually grown up with the ark of God in their house. Pretty incredible. It says, uh, with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might. They were dancing madly, cheerfully in front of God. Where they had their castanets. I don't know what that is. It sounds like it'd be part of a mariachi band. The harps and lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the, fre- the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this irreverent act. Therefore, God struck. Actually, the, the right word is exploded, okay? Pretty violent. I'll explain that in a second because you're like, what is going on? Exploded him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Two thoughts on that passage of scripture. One, they weren't following the ways of God. They were doing what seemed right in their own eyes. You see, the ark was never supposed to be carried by beast. It was always supposed to be carried on the backs of men. Here's the thing for us today. There, There is this thought that all roads lead to God, that we can just do what we want and we get him. The reality is, is that there is a prescribed way that God in his goodness, where there was no way, made a way through Jesus. And so now we have a way to God. So we can't just be like all over the place, but there's actually a divine way to get to God. There's a divine way to host his presence. It's, it's not just do whatever you want. It's not a popular thought, but it's the reality And when we come into agreement with it, we find the authority of it. Second thought, Uzzah touched the ark. His touch of the ark cost him his life. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You host the very presence of God inside of you. What cost Uzzah his life is your privilege by grace. When we begin to understand that the thing that cost Uzzah his life actually lives inside of us, it gives us an increased appreciation for the blood of Jesus that makes us so clean that what a good intentioned Uzzah touched and it cost him his life 
you and I have free access to by the blood of Jesus. That's phenomenal. Let's keep going. David was afraid of the Lord and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. He got hit with the fear of God. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom. Say Obed-Edom. It's a good name. If I have another kid, I'm going to name him (laughs) Obed-Edom. Lauren's not in here, so I can say stuff like that. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Oh, that's really cool. We'll come back to that. It says, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom, by the way, even though he's a Gittite, he was also a Levite, so he actually had a call to host the presence of God on him. And it says, in everything he... Blessed Obed-Edom in everything he has because of the ark of God. The presence of God in your life magnifies the grace of God on your life. You see, we don't know a whole lot about Obed-Edom. He may have been poor or he may have been wealthy. But something significant happened to him when the presence of God entered his life. Some would use this passage to say, well, when God shows up, it's going to make you wealthy. Well, it depends on your definition of wealth. But I promise you this, when God shows up, his grace is going to be on you in such a way that it's evident and it magnifies to the world around you. Some of you, you're calling is to wisdom like Solomon. When the presence of God shows up on your life, you may carry a natural wisdom, but when the presence of God shows up on your life, it just explodes it. Some of you have an entrepreneurial grace on your life. Like you're wired to be an entrepreneur. When the presence of God shows up on your life, it just causes that thing just to fly open like crazy. Some of you have a prophetic gift on your life. And it's one thing to have gifting, but it's another thing to be empowered by the presence of God in that gifting, and it causes it to come to life. So David gets a little bit jealous because Obed-Edom's house was experiencing what Israel was supposed to. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord notice. They changed their ways, had taken six steps. He sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Every six steps, boom, sacrifice. Here's the interesting thing for us. Sacrifices don't really make a whole lot of sense for us, right? Like, when was the last time you sacrificed a bull and a lamb? If you have an answer to that, we need to have a conversation. (laughs) Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice. But Romans 12, 1 says this, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. 
just really cool because I have an opportunity to offer me. I'm not offering an animal. Thank God for, that it's a living sacrifice instead of a dying sacrifice, right? The problem with living sacrifices is they tend to crawl off the altar. The incredible thing about the new covenant reality of sacrifice, Ephesians says that our, our sacrifice is spiritual. Here's what's beautiful. They would offer sacrifices that were redemptive in nature. The intent was to experience the redemption of God as a result of their sacrificial system. Now, it was actually a re-upping of their covenant until Jesus would come. We don't offer redemptive sacrifices. We offer responsive sacrifices. Here's what that means. That my worship is a living sacrifice, not looking for the redemption of God, but responding to the redemption of God that I've already received. Now, it's one thing to be given something, and it's another thing to receive something. I can give you a gift, but it's actually not yours until you receive the gift. You see, Jesus has given his life so that everybody would know him. But there's a response required. There's a reception to it. We know this from Ephesians 1, 3, that we've already been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So now what we're doing is we're responding to what we've already received. But your response actually determines the magnitude of your reception. Let me say that again. Your response determines the magnitude of your reception. Here's what I mean. There are churches that preach the lordship of Jesus, and we do, but they don't believe that Jesus heals. How often do they experience outbreaks of healing in their midst? Hardly ever. It's not about the sovereignty of God. It's that they're not receiving him as healer. Because we receive him as healer in our church family, we see healing on a regular basis. Why? Because it's not the nature of God. It's the magnitude of the reception, the response. So for us as a church family, the way that we sacrifice is that we actually live as sacrifices, that we give all of ourselves in sacrifice to him. So it's not just about our worship on Sunday, but it's about our life all the time. Think about that just for a second. I love what Hebrews 13, 15 says. It says, so we no longer offer up a steady stream of blood sacrifices, but through Jesus, we will offer up to God a steady stream of praise sacrifices. These are the lambs we offer from our lips that celebrate his name. Pretty cool. So it's our praise that becomes a sacrifice. Let's keep going. It says, as the, oh, I'm going to skip 15. I don't want to skip 15. 15 is really good. It says, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. David was worshiping. It says just before that, he was worshiping with all his might. Say all. All, all your might doesn't necessarily just look like this. 
right? Maybe a little like. He was worshiping with all his might. We learn later, I'll just, I'll, I'll beat you to it. When it talks about praise, it uses the word halal. Say halal. halal. It's the root word for hallelujah. It means to dance madly, to rave. Come on. We're, we're about to get there. Don't worry. We're going. You're going to get an opportunity to practice in just a minute. You see, David recognized that all he was was God's, and so God got all that he was in worship. He worshiped God with his whole body. He wasn't just lip syncing, just kind of mouthing the words. Hope that nobody hears me. He was going all out crazy for God. It says, as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in his heart. Michal, daughter of Saul, was used to a form of godliness without power. You see, Israel, under King Saul, is a really good example of what a people under a religious spirit looks like. They were used to the form of godliness. They would still say that they worship God. They would still pray to God. But they had not honored the presence of God in them and among them. And so they weren't experiencing him. A religious mindset knows about God but doesn't know God. And so Saul, uh, Saul actually led from that place because what a religious mindset does is it focuses on knowledge instead of intimacy. It's more concerned with what you know about God than knowing God in your heart. And so she had seen the ways that a king was supposed to behave in her mind, and David wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And she despised him in, his, in her heart. So then they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the crowd. That's a lot of cakes. <laughs> Something happens when you encounter the presence of God that it makes you a generous person. To each person in the crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, and she said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half-naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to her, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father, ouch, or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the people of Israel. I will celebrate the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. 
I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in high honor. If we're going to be worshipers of God, if we're going to be a people of the presence of God, if we're going to host him well, then it's going to be because we care what nobody else thinks. We can't live under a fear of man and the fear of God at the same time. It means that we're going to have to be willing to get a little wild and a little bit crazy if we're going to honor him well. It means that we give our whole lives as living sacrifices and we watch him come and have his way in us and among us as the people of God. I love what David writes. It's like he's giving us instruction in Psalm 100 verse four. He says, we enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. What he's saying is there is a right way to approach God, that we come to him with thanksgiving, that's recognizing what he's done for us, the way that he's worked in the world. And then we move from that place as we get closer, we move to that place of praise. And that, that move from thanksgiving to praise is actually a shift from what he's done to actually who he is. And what we find in worship, and these guys do it really well, they lead us in it so regularly, is that when you move from thanksgiving to praise, the next step is intimate adoration, that we begin to behold him face to face and we pour our love out on him and we experience that divine exchange of him with us, us in him, him in us. Here's what I love about the new covenant, is that we're not approaching God as if he were far off. But what Ephesians chapter two, verse six says is that we're seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms. That means that we're not coming into the courts of God. We're actually seated with him on the throne of God. And so when we begin to follow what David was prescribing in Psalm 100, that we enter his courts with thanksgiving, his gates with praise, and then we see that moves us into this place of adoration. We're not doing it, approaching him, but instead we're using that same process to fix our minds and our hearts, our affection on him. Here's what I believe happens as we go halal before God. As we say, I'm going to dance wildly, crazily before him. That it becomes an act, a prophetic act with our body saying, all of me is surrendered to all of him. He gets everything inside of me and he gets to have his way as Lord over my life. I believe that it's in that place of sacrificial worship that what we see is that our whole lives enter into the authority and under the realm of the kingdom. We're not asking for anything, but we're responding because we've been given everything. And in the same way, I believe it's in that place that heaven sets up its tent on earth. That as we begin to dance before God, what we find, not because somebody laid their hands on us, but we find sickness begin to leave. We find that that old janky knee begins to heal. We find that depression begins to leave because there's something about being in the presence of God that you can't be there without getting blessed, without experiencing transformation, amen? So here's what I want you to do. Go ahead and stand up.
Give a little stretch. Come on. Maybe touch those toes if you can. I can't. And here's what we're going to do, church. We're going to lay our dignity at the altar. We're going to find a little bit of space, spread out a little bit. You can come down to the front. And then this last song, we're going to get undignified. And we're just going to say, hey, God, you have all of me. I am a living sacrifice. I am all yours. And I believe this. I believe this is not an activation for a moment, but that God is actually transforming us as a people. And this is going to mark the way that we come to him regularly. So God, we just welcome you here. We honor your presence. We just declare, Lord, that you're the guest of honor. We thank you for your work in our midst. We thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for your hand on us. And we honor you with our whole lives, with our bodies, with our lips, with our songs, with our hearts, with our minds. In Jesus' name.